Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. Those who believe in me, even though they die, will live. And everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. A very good afternoon and welcome to this service of thanksgiving for the life of Ethel Houston. And the presence of so many of you here this afternoon really does bear testimony to who Ethel was. A life well lived, a life lived to the full, a life that went on and on and on and on. And the presence of different people from different parts of the world, the family who've come from Canada, different people have journeyed up from England, folk who've journeyed from across Scotland, representing all the different facets of Ethel's life. This is not a funeral service. We had that just before Christmas, when sadly Ethel died. We said goodbye to her. This is very much a service of thanksgiving. It's a time to celebrate. It's a time to remember. It's a time to give thanks. You will not be surprised that Ethel laid down very precise and strict instructions as to what should occur. She has chosen the hymns. She has chosen what we're going to listen to. She didn't quite go so far as to who is to say what, but mindful of who is about to speak, the mind boggles. But we're here to give thanks. We're here to say thank you to God. We're here to remember somebody who meant so much to so many. And at the heart and core of Ethel's life was her Christian faith. She was always determined that that was the number one thing in her life. In writing to one of the early churches, the Apostle Paul wrote these words. I'm convinced that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. That was true for Ethel. That was central to her life. And we remember that as we sing a version of the 23rd Psalm, a hymn that speaks of the confidence that God is not distant or remote, but can be known personally as Ethel did and does. We stand to sing, The Lord's my shepherd, I'll not want.
Please sit down. As I said, this is not a funeral service. This is a service of thanksgiving. And each of us will have our own memories of Ethel, whether it be as a sister, whether it be as an aunt, whether it be as a godmother, whether it be as a colleague, whether it be as a fellow church member, whether it was somebody who is invited to go and attend something in one of the festivals. One of my memories of Ethel is her block booking about 80 tickets for events uh, during July and August, and then just going up to different people, particularly here at church on a Sunday, and just saying, I wondered if you'd like to join me. And there would be an invitation to the book festival or somewhere else. She lived life to the full, right to the end. She was still planning, I think. She was just managed to dis be dissuaded from booking a plane ticket for Canada. But Ethel could always surprise. Quite often she would just sidle up to me at the end of a nine o'clock service and say, Dave, you won't be seeing me very much for the next few weeks. Oh, really, Ethel? Where are you off to? Well, I thought I'd start in Thailand <laughs> and then move on to China. I was happy if I got to Fife. <laughs> but Ethel's love of life, love of travel, love of work, love of people just shone through her life. And Chris and Claire, firstly, are going to come and share some memories from the family's perspective. Chris and Claire. Ethel May Houston was well-named. Not that many are named Ethel, but our Aunt Ethel followed in the footsteps of her mother, a remarkable, deeply convicted and courageous woman who left a comfortable home in London to work as a missionary in Galicia, Spain, then later was stoned out of the small village of Piedrelaves near Avila. Ethel the Younger, was the older sister to Louis and younger sibling of Jim. She may have been a middle child, but she certainly carved a venturesome and courageous path, which is a great example for us middle children. Just like her parents, who first met when her father came to rescue her mother and a fellow woman missionary, and a year later they married in 1921 in Madrid. Shortly after, they started their mission work in Albacete, capital of La Mancha, renowned for Don Quixote and an appropriate backdrop to a passionate pursuit of what many who with amazement watched Ethel live considered impossible. It was a hallmark of Ethel's life to constructively challenge convention in the cause of the good. Her formal education began in Edinburgh in 1931, where her parents had settled and a new phase of life had begun. Ethel's schooling became it itself quixotic when in 1940, Jim, her brother, and our father, who was two years behind because of ill health, he had been sent by his father to Skerry's College to catch up. Their father, um, our grandfather, decided that Ethel, who was 18 months younger than her brother Jim, 
and then at James Gillespie's girls' school, she should cram two years of work to catch up as well. Perhaps her father's own deep disappointment in his own uninterrupted schooling had fueled his desire for his own children. But both Jim and Ethel entered the University of Edinburgh in September of 1940. Graduating with an MA in 1943, Ethel began her apprenticeship with Balfour and Manson in February 1943 to enter their, the LLB program of the university. But with the war on, graduates were only allowed a first degree, and so as a distinguished student, she had been awarded medals in Roman law and in jurisprudence. Ethel was recruited to join the Codebreakers at Bletchley Park and she served in Hut 6 from February 29, 1944 until March of 1945 when she returned back to work at Balfour and Manson. There was a long family connection with the law firm as uh, Frances Balfour's mother had been a friend of Ethel's grandmother in England. Ethel was appointed a partner of Balfour and Manson in 1949 and later became the first woman as a senior partner of a law firm in Scotland. She also became the first woman to join the Council of the Law Society of Scotland in 1975, and then made an honorary member in 2009. Ethel's most strenuous public office was as one of two women elected to serve on the Royal Commission for Legal Services in Scotland, which met between 1976 and 1980. She also served on the Commission for Racial Equality from May 1st, 1985 to April 30th, 1986. In 1981, Ethel was awarded the OBE for her services, and my family have lovingly referred to her as Sir Ethel ever since. <laughs> we are honored today to have Elaine Motion herself a pioneer in becoming the first female chairman of a Scottish law firm to reflect on the impact of Ethel's contribution through her professional life. But this was all hidden for us as family. Um, and there was another part of Aunt Ethel. This was the professional Ethel. But her eclectic tastes and her passions drew her into much more than just the law, remarkable as her contributions were in that sphere. Ethel loved Scotland resplendent in various vestments, she covered huge swaths of the country on foot, often with conscripted fellow enthusiasts, including weary nephews, who struggled to find within themselves sufficient zeal to, sufficient zeal to match the pace with which she herself seemed to find effortless. For many years, she rented cottages in the borders at Nether Moninut and at Blackerston, both near Abbey St. Bathans, befriending farmers, Browns, and Logans, respectively. And there, she entertained friends to both her imaginative cooking and her fervent perambulations. As a family, we came up each Easter from Oxford and joined the Spartan Quarters, I think back on what my mother endured, building memories for our whole next generation. My own sheep farm in Canada 
is rooted in the memories that Ethel gave me and it's founded on my love for the borders, which remains, thanks now to Marjorie and John, where I can go and stay, and that that has been instilled deep in me. Ethel loved people. She tended for so many from all walks. As elder sister with Brother Jim in Oxford, she cared for her aging parents, sharing a flat with her mother until her death. <coughs> She cared for her sister Louis with the same loyal intention, though occasionally Louis resisted such intense intention. She introduced her close friend Rita Davidson to her brother Jim, and the rest, as they say, is history, as her nephew Christopher and nieces Liddell, Claire, and Penny, we adored her as she advocated for our burgeoning independence and cultivated within each of us an exhilarating live, love for simply living to the full. Our father would use the rather flowery word particularize to describe how Aunt Ethel dug out of each of us what she knew mattered most and affirmed our own uniqueness in very personal ways. Ethel was also godmother to her niece, Mrs. Marjorie Barrows. Philippa Matthews, and Cherry Mullins Blundell. It's testament to her indiscriminate loyalty to family that Marjorie has so well reflected Ethel's love for her, as she and her husband John have so well cared for Ethel in her frailer years. Ethel's care for others echoes in Marjorie's faithful love for Ethel. It was a long tradition for the partners of Balfour and Manson to serve privately at the legal dispensary which was set up in 1900 in the Canongate to give gratuitous aid to the poor after work in the evenings. Such pro bono service Ethel quietly did with her partners. Privately, she also provided housing and employment to young people seeking her help. Those who helped her at home were always cared for in many personal ways. Ethel loved life. Few but Ethel drove a sports car with a crash helmet on, just in case. Few but Ethel would rise well before dawn, march up to Frederick Street to complete the office duties and return to serve breakfast to house guests just rising at Royal Circus. Few but Ethel would send youthful nieces off alone in Paris taxis without money and identification in order to cultivate their independence. <laughs> Few but Ethel would buy a woodland that was to mature more than a lifetime later as an investment for her old age. Few but Ethel would fiercely guard the loyal confidences of friends and foe alike pursuing grandeur and her own self-service in favor of righteous justice. Few but Ethel would invite her office staff to care for their children at work long before the word daycare was invented by employers. Few but Ethel could ever be, well, just Ethel. Resplendent, brilliant, perverse, passionate, deeply loving. 
in the words of the poet T.S. Eliot, a great mind and a noble soul. Of her like, there are few, and we shall all miss her deeply. Well done, dear Ethel. Rest now from all your glorious living. You have done well. You have finished the race. Finished just as you intended. With every faculty intact, with the morning papers read, and ready now for the great adventure to begin with your Lord. Well done, Ethel. Thank you. Thank you for that moving tribute. Uh, as we have heard, one of the things that was a feature of Ethel's life was of being a pioneer in the legal profession in Scotland. And it's a joy to have Elaine Motion, who, as we've heard, is also a pioneer herself uh, as the first female chairman of Balfour and Manson, who's going to come and share with us about Ethel's uh, professional life. Good afternoon, everybody. I should add that the colour of my coat is a complete coincidence. <laughs> it was not set down by Ethel at all. I would firstly like to thank the family for inviting me to um, speak today about such an amazing woman. And I do so with a deep sense of honour as chairman of uh, Balfour Nansen and on behalf of my partners, past and present, and many of them are here today, as well as work colleagues, um, likewise they are here. And they all knew and loved Ethel or Miss Houston to most, and her individual spirit that she brought. Now, I've spoken with many people from Balfour Manson and from wider field in order to speak to you today. Um, because I joined Balfour Manson in 1993, just as Ethel was retiring in 1994. A theme has emerged of a redoubtable lady with a fierce independence, but with a generously humble spirit. She had a humanity that ensured she related to people from all walks of life. Her clients from every background were extremely loyal to her throughout her whole career, and she them. Loyalty was, as you have heard, one of her core traits now, as you've heard, um, she put many of the plans today in place, and um, I'm sure she's taking real pleasure in joining us today in some form or another um, to see all of her friends again. But I'd like to wind the clock back a bit to 1949, and I have no idea whether the three male partners then had any concept of the decision that they made to offer Ethel a partnership and the seismic impact that that would have, not only for Ethel, nor the firm, 
but for the profession as a whole. Um, to be the first female partner in any legal firm in Scotland is an extraordinary achievement from the men who made that decision as well as the lady who was rewarded with it. It is of great credit to those men that they did not differentiate by gender, uh, but instead looked to the person herself, treating Ethel as a valued and genuine equal. It struck me listening to Oprah Winfrey um, the other day when she was speaking at the Golden Globes that their sense of equality is in very sharp focus or very sharp contrast to many of the issues that are front and centre in the headlines today. So pioneer for all of them, I think, applies. It speaks volumes of the ethos sown then and shown, which I'm delighted to say has blossomed and grown and is still held very dear to Balfour Manson's heart nearly 60 years later. For many years now, the firm has had um, almost an equal number of male and female partners. And I think that is probably a record um, for a firm of this size. The message that was sent on that day in 1949 to women in the firm, and indeed to the profession as a whole, cannot be understated and has resonated throughout the years. Ethel, I'm assured by Ian Balfour, um, was surprised by the offer of partnership. Um, but clearly her talent was such as to more than merit it. She committed her life to her clients, colleagues and friends, and in doing so invited many for soirees in her home. I'm sure many of you were uh, part of that, and I know some of my colleagues were indeed. On one occasion, those attending, um, the secretarial and uh, cash room staff, as well as uh, an office manageress, had a delightful evening with a lovely spread um, by Ethel. No airs and graces to be seen, um, and she cared not that her undergarments were drying above everybody in full, in full view. <laughs> On another occasion, Sorry, I should say her hospitality skills were always to the fore and she was very generous in making those traveling from far and wide from countries um, across the world. She would make them feel welcomed, included and appreciated. She allowed, as has been touched on, the use of one of our large rooms in the office to be used as a creche. And it was during the teacher strikes in the 70s and she sanctioned the wearing of trousers in the office long before any other firm did um, during the miners' strike. I think because it was so cold. <laughs> she was instrumental in setting up filing and accounting systems um, as well as lending her female touch to the building. While she was demanding um, with her colleagues and staff it was to encourage people to achieve their potential. Her sense of family was very strong in the office. She would give gifts to the children of the partners. Um, she would write letters to staff um, 
who, were, who had situations of illness or difficulty and supported them. She also had an instinctive understanding of her client's needs. Sometimes, I'm sure you won't be surprised to hear, um, with unconventional solutions. And I know a few people here today that can add uh, to that. Nor was she necessarily one for complying with office procedures and protocols. Her dress code, again as has been touched upon, was also slightly unconventional in those days, with daily, appropriate I should add, display of unusually patterned tights. I am told that she had more than 50 unique pairs of tights that she circulated regularly. Her generosity of spirit uh, also um, was shown in allowing her car to be used uh, as an office car with, on occasion, interesting results. Again, Ian, um, in his biography of the firm, recounts having to give a police officer a lift in that car in relation to a case, I hasten to add, um, with a degree of trepidation as the windscreen wipers weren't working. <laughs> on another occasion, uh, there was an office outing to the Highlands, a walking trip, um, and Ethel arrived later than uh, anticipated, uh, but her arrival was um, heard some distance away, as the exhaust on the car had pretty much fallen off. And I know one of my um, consultants at the moment was in that car, and uh, his ears were not uh, in a good state when he arrived. Her driving was renowned. <laughs> but on the other side of Ethel, she jumped at the chance in this very building uh, to help the foundation of an art school, now the hugely well-regarded Leith School of Art. Her drafting of the aims and legal framework was vital uh, to that uh, school um, starting and remain in place today. She gave willingly of her time as a director for a number of years, uh, with the meetings taking place in our boardroom, previously her room, and kept in touch with the school for many, many years after her retirement. Again, as has been touched on, she was one of the first of two women to be appointed to the Council of the Law Society of Scotland between 1975 and 1981, again setting the foundation stone for many to follow, and uh, she was awarded to OBE for services, sitting on the Royal Commission uh, for Legal Services for Scotland and the Commission for Racial Equality. Her honorary membership uh, was um, one she delighted in, and only last year I took a call from the Law Society asking if she could attend a dinner. Um, sadly, it was the day before um, she went into a nursing home, so she wasn't able to do so. Um, otherwise, I am certain um, Michael, she would have been there. Ethel, whilst you were diminutive in height, you were statuesque in nature. From a personal point of view, I thank you for making my career path that bit wider and smoother, and I'm sure many others uh, echo that statement. May your influence ever shine through the further development of women in the law and elsewhere. 
I am certain all here, in a quiet moment, will toast their personal thanks to you for touching their lives and for leaving such a legacy for those to follow. Thank you. So there's much to give thanks for. Integrity, humility, generosity, a willingness to live life to the full. Where do those values come from? Well, for Ethel, they came from her Christian faith. Her faith set her free to be the person that God had always intended her to be. And Marjorie and Jen are going to come and read two passages from the Bible that, Mar that Ethel uh, has prescribed should be read. Keep me safe, my God, for in you I take refuge. I say to the Lord, you are my Lord, apart from you I have no good thing. I say of the holy people who are in the land, they are the noble ones in whom is all my delight. Those who run after other gods will suffer more and more. I will not pour out libations of blood to such gods or take up their names on my lips. Lord, you alone are my portion and my cup. You make my lot secure. The boundary lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Surely I have a delightful inheritance. I will praise the Lord who counsels me. Even at night, my heart instructs me. I will keep my eyes always on the Lord. With him at my right hand, I will not be shaken. Therefore my heart is glad and my tongue rejoices. My body also will rest secure, because you will not abandon me to the realm of the dead, nor will you let your faithful ones see decay. You make known to me the path of life. You will fill me with joy in your presence with eternal pleasures at your right hand. Second Timothy 4, verses 6 to 8. For I am already being poured out like a drink offering, and the time has come for my departure. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Now there is in store for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have longed for his appearing. Thank you. And now it's my pleasure to invite Alan Torrance to come and address us. Along with everybody else who knew um, Ethel, um, I revered her. 
um, it's hard to express how much I shall miss her and how um, the unqualified admiration and fondness with which I remember her. Um, Claire and Chris and Elaine have spoken magnificently of her enormous virtues, her unqualified enthusiasm for life, her wisdom, her erudition, her unique capacity to articulate and complex issues with pithy clarity, her extraordinary generosity and altruism, and her all-embracing concern to encourage others. And if I pause for just a second, I can hear that infectious, fun-filled laughter that almost defined her. And there's some mention has been made of her driving. She came to visit us in Greenbank Crescent on one occasion, and um, somehow, mysteriously, managed to misread some traffic cones, drive through some traffic works, roadworks, and bounce across a six-foot-deep trench in the road, to the complete astonishment of the workmen. <laughs> and when she, she knocked on the door and took us out, um, and we destroyed her car, which was straddling this, this, this trench. Um, now, a situation that would have um, had most people frustrated had Ethel helpless with laughter <laughs> at the whole situation and her folly. She transformed situations which were just grief-stricken into the most utmost fun. She was a remarkable. In the years to come, remembering her Christian witness, moreover, will remain a source of encouragement to all of us who had the profound privilege of knowing her. We have so much for which to give thanks. In Psalm 139, the psalmist declares the full extent of God's knowledge of us. For the psalmist, God knows every intimate detail of our lives. He knows all our thoughts, all of our ways, when we sit down and when we rise up. Even before a word is in on my tongue, O Lord, you know it completely. In some every facet of our lives is laid bare, and even the internal processing of our minds before the Lord. And as the psalmist points out, there's no escape from this. There's no hiding from God's all-knowing gaze. It's a frightening thought, at least for mortals like myself. Why? Because knowledge is power. To know someone's secrets is to have power over that person. The power to condemn, to humiliate, to manipulate, to destroy. But remarkably, the psalmist goes on to rejoice in this fact. And, the, and as we've heard from our reading, this rejoicing is prevalent right throughout the psalms. So why does the psalmist find the fact that God knows us so intimately grounds 
for celebration. It's because the God whom the psalmist knew and the God whom Paul knew does not use this knowledge against us. He doesn't use it to humiliate or control or condemn. For in God, knowing and loving go hand in hand. And the ground for the psalmist rejoicing is the fact that God's love is not a naive loving in ignorance or an amorphous generic loving. God's love is a true and particular loving. And it's a true loving precisely because he knows those whom he loves. God loves in truth. He knows those whom he loves and he loves us in and through all that he knows. It is this knowing and loving that is key to understanding the new creation. And it is the new creation that we celebrate in this thanksgiving service. It's very appropriate that the service began with a piece of jazz. A few years ago, the Guardian newspaper, I hope Ethel doesn't mind my referring to the Guardian, um, ran a series of 50 great moments in the history of jazz. One great moment towered above the rest. It was a concert that took place in the Cologne Opera House. The story begins in late January 1975. A young 17-year-old German girl called Vera Brandes had convinced the Cologne Opera House to host a late-night concert to showcase the jazz pianist Keith Jarrett. When it was approved, she worked round the clock to publicize the concert and was so successful in this that 1,400 people bought tickets to attend. On the morning of the concert, Vera met, met up with Keith Jarrett and took him into the opera house to let him inspect the piano on which he was to perform. As Jarrett as Jared tried out the piano, he was physically shocked and immediately wandered over to have a chat with his producer. And then the producer came over to Vera and said, if you don't get a new piano, Keith can't play. A mistake had been made. The opera house had brought in the wrong piano. Its upper keys were tinny and harsh. The black keys were almost rigid. All the keys were out of tune, and the pedals didn't work. Moreover, the piano was far too small a model to make the kind of sound that would carry in the huge Cologne Opera House. So Keith Jarrett walked away, leaving Vera, the young Vera, in a kind of situation of which nightmares are made. After a series of frantic phone calls, Vera found a piano tuner, but it was quickly clear that it was much too late to get a new piano in time for the concert. Left with no other option, she ran out into the pouring rain, ran over to Keith's car, and just begged him to play. As she stood there in the rain, 
soaking and defeated. Keith took pity on her and relenting said, Never forget, only for you. A few hours later, when it was time for the concert to begin, Jarrett walked out onto the stage and sat down at the broken piano. As he started to play, something extraordinary began to happen. Jarrett was forced to improvise in such a way as to avoid playing the broken notes. And as he did so using the middle keys, he created a uniquely tranquil sound that the audience had not heard from him before. And drawing on the lower keys to accompany the melody, he generated a contrasting rumbling bass. What transpired was a performance that has become legendary. The constraints that were placed on his performance led Jarrett to be creative and imaginative in ways that made for a performance that was profoundly fresh and new and innovative. The audience heard something that completely took them by surprise, exceeding all their expectations. There was an energy, but also a serenity. And the audience loved it. The story doesn't end there. The recording of that concert became the best-selling piano album of all time, as also the best-selling solo jazz album that's ever been made. In this story, Vera Brandes found herself in a situation of despair. There was no way for her to redeem a situation which to all outward appearances seemed to offer no hope. So she turned to the one person who could do something in that situation. The one who uttered the words, never forget, only for you. And Vera, Vera handed Jarrett a broken and dysfunctional piano. He embraced it and created something uniquely beautiful. So many of us here remember Ethel at the height of her powers. Profoundly impressive, daunting woman. A woman who, as we've heard, was a trailblazer in the legal profession. It is in part that memory that made it so hard for many of us to watch her become frailer with age and struggle with ill health and then progress to a nursing home. Although she never lost her altruism and generosity of spirit and sharpness of mind, one saw the, how the joys of this world came to be overshadowed by a fragility and suffering and the apparent finality of death. This, of course, is a story that our secular world tells, one which glorifies youth, fears old age, and whose final word is one of death and ultimate despair. But that's like concluding the story of the Cologne concert in the afternoon 
The point where Vera found herself watching her hopes and plans disintegrating. Key to our giving thanks to Ethel and remembering her is the recognition that it is not biological death that spells the end of her story. The end of the story belongs to none other than the God who explains why there's anything at all rather than nothing. It belongs to the God who so loves this frail and broken world that he embraced it in Christ and takes it to himself. So the story of Ethel's life is emphatically not one of a brilliant woman projected toward ultimate and desert disintegration. What we give thanks for today is the fact that the story of her life has only just begun. Because it's a story of resurrection and of new creation. In the story of the Cologne concert, Jarrett took a deteriorating, dysfunctional piano, embraced it, and created out of it something utterly beautiful and new and magical. And this end to the story will always shape how Vera Brandes looks back and remembers the unfolding events. When it comes to the gospel, we find something similar. The New Testament's witness to Jesus Christ presents us with a story of God's coming into this world, taking its brokenness and frailty to himself, and creating something whose beauty radically transcends anything we could possibly anticipate. I remember just this summer, Peter Van Inwagen, widely regarded as the world's greatest living metaphysician, commented, if, it ha if God hadn't become incarnate in Jesus Christ, he'd have had to do something even greater. And his voice um, choked up. To know this is to know the real story. So when it comes to the gospel, we find something similar. To know this is to know the real story, the full story of each of us to which the gospel bears such astounding witness. Ethel has fought the good fight. She has finished the race, as our reading suggested. She has kept the faith. But as Paul goes on, from now on there is reserved for her the crown of righteousness, the fullness of rejoicing in God's promises, the fullness of the new creation, the ongoing story to which we are not yet fully privy. But what of those who are left behind? Her brother Jim, whom she adored, her nieces, her nephews, her great-nieces great and great-nephews and godchildren, and her myriad friends. There's a popular meditation, often read at funerals, by a former Regis professor in Oxford, Henry Scott Holland. It begins, Death is nothing at all. It does not count. I've only slipped away into the next room. Nothing has happened. Everything remains exactly as it was. That is a travesty 
It's simply false. To diminish the reality of death in this way is to fail to appreciate that death wrenches us from those whom we love and tears at our hearts. For death means that we won't see or touch or hear our loved ones in the months and years ahead. We can no longer consult them, seek their advice, witness their delight in our successes, or hear words of assurance when we most need them. Death is not nothing. It numbs us with grief and rearranges our lives in ways that are not easy to endure. But to stand in the face of death is to cast our burdens on the one who has taken our humanity, passed through death, and now intercedes for us in our loss, in our grief, and in our struggles. For he is the one who knows us, who, as the psalmist insists, knows every detail of the individual lives of each of us, who knows our loneliness, our confusion, our doubts, our fears, and who also knows our future, and who loves those whom he knows intimately. In this life, we know only in part. We see through a mirror darkly. But one day, we shall know even as we are known. That day has now arrived for Ethel, together with all the joy and the fellowship and the peace and the fulfillment that attend it. The word that the rest of us are to hear now is the incarnate word. I am the resurrection and the life. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end of the story. See, I am making all things new. As we look to the new, new creation, where the tears are wiped from our eyes and we become all that we are created to be, we hear the voice of the risen, ascended Jesus Christ, addressing each and every one of us whom he knows completely and whom he loves utterly. Never forget all this for you. Amen. Thank you. So let's think upon those words and think too upon all that Ethel meant to us as we hear not a jazz improvisation on a broken piano, but we do hear an oboe piece played on an organ that David Hare, one of Ethel's friends, has uh, learnt to play. So let's sit and reflect as we listen to Gabriel's oboe theme as David plays it for us on the organ.
It was my privilege to know Ethel for the last 22 years as rector of this church, uh, but long before I came, uh, Roger and Ursula uh, brought about much of the rebirth of St. Paul's and St. George's, and we're very indebted to Ethel for her support and love. And uh, it's a real privilege to be able to welcome Roger and Ursula both back uh, to come and share some memories of what Ethel means to them. Well, it's uh, a huge uh, privilege to be here, and uh, I'm very grateful, David, for, I don't know whether Ethel included us in the original lineup, but we're so grateful to be able to say a few words uh, about her. And uh, as has been said so eloquently and so beautifully by so many people, she touched all our lives in different ways. And I want to just share a couple of stories, and then Ursula's going to share something about how she touched us. So we arrived at uh, St. Paul's and St. George's, or P&G's as it became known, in the autumn of 1985. And uh, the congregation had dwindled. There was a handful of people here. I remember there was rain coming in. I used to look up and see the rain coming through the roof, uh, running down the uh, Victorian Electric, electrical works, shorting it often. And um, the hall next door had been let out as a dance studio. It was called Adele's Dance Studio. And uh, some of the stonework was dangerous. I remember the, um, what are those things called? Uh, parapets would sway in the wind because all the, the oak dowling had rotted. And uh, even some of the pieces had fallen off, narrowly missing people at the bus stop. Uh, there was no rectory to live in, and uh, when we arrived, uh, we came up from London, we actually lived above a Chinese, well in England you call them takeaways, but in Scotland they're called carryouts, or, well, yeah, carryouts. And so we lived above a Chinese carryout on the Dalkeith Road, it was called the Silver Spoon. And there were a couple of old brothers who'd been in the church for many years called John and Jimmy Main, and I remember they used to collect the offering and uh, run round the corner with the offering in a black plastic bag, which they used to take to the Bank of Scotland. But I remember the first gift day that we ever had here, and the congregation gave £25,000 on one day, and I remember John and Jimmy were going to take this money with them in, in the black plastic bag, and somebody here, I don't know if he's here, said, no, you're not to do that, and they ran them round in a taxi. But there was no vicarage to live in. And um, then Ethel arrived, and it was a bit like the cavalry had come. And I remember, I thought, who is this extraordinary lady? Her energy, her vitality as a been talked about. She was so amazing, and she arrived, and she'd felt God call her to come and work with us at St. Paul's and St. George's. So she brought all this energy and intelligence and seeing the big picture with her. And uh, the, the, she was wonderful with young people. Uh, we had lots of young people beginning to come, and Ethel was great with them. But, and this was the thing that she helped us very significantly with, 
she helped us to buy a rectory. And that was really important to us, to get a four-bedroomed house in the middle of Edinburgh. It was very difficult then, it's impossible now. And it was through Ethel's advice and her wisdom and her leadership that we were able to put in a bid for 92,000 pounds, which was a huge amount in 1986. I remember it required great faith and the treasurer resigned. <laughs> and, uh, and it became, because of Ethel's energy and support, it became a, a very fine family home to us and it's now a family home to David and Kathy and their family. And the other little thing that Ethel, I mean, it was these little things which meant so much to us. She, uh, she could see I was under huge pressure. We had five children and a church which was exploding and I was, sometimes I thought I was going to die. And uh, she said, Roger, would you like to use my flat? So I used to go and study in her flat and have quiet and I, that was so kind of her and really summed her up as a person. Well, Ethel zoomed into our life as a family. Though she didn't have her own children, she was amazing with other people's children. You know, that fun element, but also very personal with each one of them. For us, Ethel see, understood how tight our budget was. And I'm telling you, in the 1980s, a vicar's budget was extremely tight. Definitely no room for luxuries. So Ethel was a bit like a fairy godmother to our children. For several years before Christmas, she whisked our children off in a taxi for what was like a, a magical mystery tour. First thing, she'd take them to a toy shop. It might be Jenna's with that magnificent Christmas tree or the Waverley Centre with its twinkling lights. And they were allowed to choose completely themselves. They could choose one toy. And then, and this was such a treat for them, it was Burger King or McDonald's or somewhere else. And when she had her wood, we and many others were invited. I remember one time, it must have been springtime around Easter, and so we were taken off to the Primrose Bank and then hunted for Easter eggs, which we probably had to hide. She gave us other treats, which we simply couldn't have afforded. Theater, or for Mary Jane, the opera. Ethel had many godchildren, and she kindly added our Mary Jane to her little brood. She'd send her postcards when she went on holiday, uh, places she'd visited, and all with a little bit of interesting information little bit of education. So much to give thanks for, and let's do so as we pray. Let's pray together. And when I say the words, Lord, in your mercy, if you can reply, hear our prayer. Lord, in your mercy, 
hear our prayer. God of mercy, Lord of life, you have made us in your image to reflect your truth and light. Today we give you thanks for Ethel, for the grace and mercy that she received from you, and for all that was good in her life. We thank you today for the memories that we treasure, a time of silence for your own thoughts and memories of Ethel and of all that she meant to you. We thank you for her integrity. We thank you for her faith. We thank you for her love of life. We thank you for her generosity. We thank you for her gift of hospitality. Thank you for every good memory. Lord, in your mercy, hear our prayer. Your mighty power brings joy out of grief and life out of death. We do ask for you to look in mercy, in particular on her close family and all those who mourn. We pray for her brother Jim. We pray for her immediate family and friends. Give them patient faith in times of darkness. Strengthen them with the knowledge of your love. Comfort them by your word Grant them peace from your spirit. Lord, in your mercy, hear our prayer. You are tender towards your children, and your mercy is over all your works. We ask you this afternoon to heal the memories of hurt and failure, and give us the wisdom and grace to use aright the time that is left to us here on earth to turn to Christ, to follow in his steps, to see that even though our lives might be broken, just like that piano was, you can come and make all things new. Lord, in your mercy, hear our prayer. God of mercy, entrusting into your hands all that you have made, and rejoicing in our communion with all your faithful people, we hear that you would take our prayers, that you would grant rest now to Ethel, who has run her race, who has kept the faith, and grant to her the crown of righteousness that is due to her. Lord, in your mercy, hear our prayer. God, our creator and redeemer, by your power Christ conquered death and entered into glory. Confident of his victory and claiming his promises, 
We entrust Ethel to your mercy. In the name of Jesus, our Lord, who died and is alive and reigns with you, now and forever. Amen. Our final hymn is itself a prayer. Be thou my vision, O Lord of my heart. Naught be all else to me, save that thou art. We stand to sing. Please be seated as Jim brings us his final memories of his sister. It is understandable, and yet it is also ironic, 
that in our mortality, we never know the full story of a loved one until after their death. I myself have learned so many new things about Ethel since her obituaries began to be published and the letters that you have so lovingly sent us already began to arrive. In Ethel's case, she could easily have been a spy as there were many things that will never be known about her. Yes, she was recruited to Hut 6 in Bletchley Park as a decoding agent. And until then, Ethel and I were very close. We were only 18 months apart in age. And then I lost her when at 19, she was sworn to secrecy over her war duties. This profoundly affected her personality for the rest of her life. On her release to re-enter civilian life, already well through her legal training, she still toyed with the idea of reading Sanskrit itself, a decoding task. And viewing her eclectic library of books, she was always looking on the fringe of topics, whether it was the 12th century Katha heresy of Provence or the novel evolutionary ideas of Taya de Chardin. I never could project what she was studying next, whether it might be forestry at her retreat at Abbey St. Bathens, or modern art at her pad in Nice, and her patronage, of course, of the Leith School here of art. Meanwhile, she was always making lots of genuine friends from common interests, kindness, compassion, hospitality, personally and professionally, as so many represent here today. From childhood, Ethel was full of fun. She was a strong and fearless child. When she was only 10, two pairs of our parents' friends who had no children offered to give Ethel and myself a short summer holiday, but they were separated homes by the mouth of the River Tyne, one pair in North Shields and the other at South Shields. For whatever reason, geography or emotion, Ethel and I were never allowed to see each other during the holiday. It made a lasting impression on me as I was passive by nature. But for Ethel, no holes were barred. So she waited one day until the mistress had gone to the outside loo. And immediately, she rushed out and bolted the door. No shouting and hammering at the door fazed Ethel until some neighbor came to the rescue 
it ended our holiday abruptly, <laughs> much to our mutual jubilation. It was through Ethel that I met my wife, as has already been alluded, Rita, as one of Ethel's many friends. That too might have ended disastrously, as Ethel had previously invited Rita to see Paris, which for Ethel meant spending all the time at the law courts, while for Rita, also a strong-minded lady, it meant being a novel tourist wanting to see the Eiffel Tower. After their weekend of growing tensions, I was to meet them at a railway station taking us to, Paris, to Madrid. But through misunderstanding, we waited separately all day at the wrong station, <laughs> our tempers intensifying by the wait. We were just civil enough to be on the same train to Madrid that night. Our Spanish trip was to visit our parents' missionary families and then go on to Gibraltar <clears throat> where the girls would sail home. And for me, it began three months exploration through North Africa on behalf of the Royal Geographical Society. I wanted to make the trip alone with Ethel but Ethel, you see, was always surrounded by a coterie of friends. And the same thing occurred years later when I planned to meet Ethel in Vienna, and again, there was a friend there to greet both of us. As, for our, as our four children will attest, their Aunt Ethel was uniquely special to each one and then to her great-nephews and nieces, even though since 1970 we have lived apart in Canada. On her retirement, we wanted Ethel to come and live with us in Vancouver, but her roots and her loyalties were too deep in Edinburgh. We have seen so forcibly from the tributes paid to her how strong were these bonds of affection. It's also been alluded that our Louis, our younger sister who died some years ago, followed Ethel into law as a lecturer at Dundee University. And afflicted in her declining years with alcoholism, our beloved sister was given all the care by Ethel anyone could ever have given her patience, her provisions of love, they were endless. Yet she never complained, for she was fiercely loyal to dear Louis. In closing, I want to thank all of you for being here today. We have so much thanksgiving to express. Personally, we want to thank my niece Marjorie and Ethel's goddaughter for all the loving care of Ethel in our absence. She's been a tower of strength to us all. And then we want to thank the three members of the concierge service 
who loved and served Ethel in her apartment so well. Ethel could not have stayed so long in her apartment without the home care she received round the clock from the um, Hesben Hamilton group with such affection and with so much dignity. And likewise, in the last month, the nursing care of Chamberlain Care Home was for Ethel so special, making the transition from home to the last stage of her life peaceful and comforting. We also want to thank so much our dear brother David, who has this, uh, uh, conducted this service for us. And we think too of the hospitality that your church is now giving to us this afternoon. And we also want to thank dear Roger and Ursula for their tribute, as well as our old family friends, Alan Torrance, who's given us this lovely homily, and David Hare playing the organ as they repeated these very services, both of them, some 16 years ago when Rita and I celebrated our golden wedding celebration in um, the chapel of Glasgow University. So it is indeed in the name of the Lord whom we love and serve that we thank you all. Our father loved the tribute and I think it would be a worthy epitaph for Ethel this afternoon that Enoch walked with God and he was not for God took him. Ethel walked with God and the Lord has taken her and she is not for she's with him. And now is the time for us to exchange the reminiscences of Ethel's life over a cup of tea. She would have loved to invite you to all be there now at the reception that we have. Thank you very much. So some practical details. Uh, in a moment, the doors into the ground floor hall will open, and that's where tea and coffee and sandwiches are to be found. And uh, as Jim has said, Ethel would very much want you to stay, to share stories, and to share memories. That is as much part of the Thanksgiving as this service. But before we finish, a reminder too that uh, as you go into the hall, there's a table here on the right-hand side, your left-hand side, and uh, on that is a, a, a book of memories. And if you have a particular memory or a thought that you'd like to write down in that book, that would be very meaningful to the family. Uh, they can take that back to Canada with them. So uh, do take time to jot down a memory in that book, either in or on the way out of getting refreshments. But would you please stand? And so as we give thanks for Ethel's life, and for all that she meant to us. We remember how much she knew that she was loved, 
not just by each of us, but above all, by the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so we pray that God may give you his comfort and his peace, that God might give you his light and his joy in this world and the next, and the blessing of God Almighty, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, rest upon you, remain with you, and all those whom you love and pray for this day. Amen. And now unto him that is able to keep us from falling, to present us faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy, to the only wise God our Saviour, be glory and majesty, dominion and power, both now and forever. Amen.